passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We'll take a moment to dismiss kids through fifth grade uh, to a time of kids worship and just kind of want to give you a heads up based off of the sermon topic this morning. Um, maybe, maybe kids worship isn't something that you normally um, take advantage of for your kids. Uh, you might want to this morning just based off of what we're going to be looking at. I, yeah, I do want to give you a fair warning um, this morning as we Return to 2 Samuel. So we've been working our way through 2 Samuel. Uh, this book, uh, we, we started um, last spring, uh, took a break during the summer. We've been working our way steadily through it, uh, chapter by chapter. And this morning, we're in a, a text that is, uh, there's no way, other, uh, no way to describe it other than just saying it's, it's probably one of the most graphic and disturbing texts in the entire Bible. And this is one of those passages that might seem like it belongs more in Hollywood than it does in the Bible. Um, and yet, just this is, this is kind of how we operate here at Crosswinds. We, we don't dodge passages, try to dance around these passages, even though they're really uncomfortable, especially really uncomfortable to preach. Um, not, not terribly exciting for me. Um, but the reason why we do that uh, is we believe that this is God's Word and that there is something that God is going to teach us through it. Uh, teach us about himself as well as to teach us about ourselves. And, and so we'll soon notice that this text, it doesn't glorify what takes place. It also doesn't belabor the point. It, it just goes straight through. It doesn't shy away from the wickedness of, of David's sons, and yet it also doesn't go into every single detail. And, and so we'll, we'll do the same this morning. This morning, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel 13 um, so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's one located in the chairs right in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, you can just grab that, and that can be yours um, so you can follow along this morning. Now, if you're new to the idea of Christianity, you're new to the idea of the Bible, uh, this chapter probably doesn't fit your mold of what's in the Bible. It's a story about a brother raping his sister and the subsequent murder of that brother at the hands of his brother. And you might be wondering, why on earth is this in the Bible? What on earth can we learn from this? And even if this story doesn't catch you off guard, because maybe you're familiar with the story of 2 Samuel as a whole, maybe you've heard it before, you might find yourself wondering, well, what on earth am I supposed to, to get out of this text? Now, with that in mind, I think there are two other passages in the Bible that will help us frame what God wants to teach us this morning through this chapter. The first is from last week, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, 2 Samuel 11, uh, this horrible moment in David's life. 2 Samuel 11, David commits adultery with the wife of one of his best military leaders. Her name is Bathsheba. And in order to cover things up, David eventually has Uriah, his, his military leader, murdered in order to cover up his adultery. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which we looked at last week, God confronts David through Nathan the prophet. 
And David, he repents of this horrific sin. He returns to the Lord, wonderful news. And yet in the midst of that repentance, we also read this from the prophet Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." God forgives David of his sin, and yet, nevertheless, there are consequences for his sin. This past week, I heard one pastor describe it this way. He said, repentance is like retrieving a stone that has been thrown into a pond. You may be able to get the stone back, that's what repentance is, but the ripples of that stone's throw cannot be stopped and indeed keep on spreading. And so it is with David. David has repented of his sin. God has forgiven him. That's important for us to stress. God has forgiven David. And yet, the stone that was thrown, even though it has been retrieved, there are ripples, the consequences, and they cannot be stopped. What's more, God has promised that as a result of what David has done, the same things will happen to him publicly that he did in private. This chapter is the beginning of God keeping that promise to David. There is, in this chapter, evil against David that comes out of his own house. And as we consider this passage, we would do well to keep that in mind. Because this chapter is a chapter of God keeping that promise to David, even though it's a terrifying promise. There's a second text, though, that I think is important for us to look at, to have in mind as we consider this passage. It comes from Paul's second letter to his friend Timothy. He writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how your child, from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul makes the claim that all of scripture, and that includes 2 Samuel chapter 13, is intended to make us wise for salvation. That's what we see in verse 15 there. And also to equip us for every good work, verse 17. So in other words, as we're studying this passage, it will enable us to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus. When we consider this text then, we should have at the back of our minds, what can I learn from this that will help me to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus? And that will be our focus this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is a lengthy chapter, so we're just going to go ahead and jump in. We'll see that it's really just two stories that are about David's sons. Let's work our way through each story and then consider at the end what God might be teaching us. Let's pray once more as we jump in. Father, we ask now as we approach your word that you would speak to your people. We believe that your word is living and active, so we pray that you would use this text to transform us increasingly into the image of Jesus. We ask these things for his sake and for our good. Amen. 
Well, the first text, uh, first story centers around Amon, Amnon, excuse me, and Tamar in verses 1 through 22. Let's go ahead and jump into verse 1. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was tormented, was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may eat it, see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Now, it's important for us to realize that David, even though he is described as this man after God's own heart, was a man also full of flaws. And perhaps his greatest flaw was his sexual appetite. He was a polygamist. He had a number of wives. And as such, he had a number of children from different women. And here we are introduced to three of his children. The first one, Amnon, is his firstborn son. It was born to his first wife, Ahinoam. And he has two other children that are mentioned here, Absalom and Tamar, that were born to his third wife named Maka. And Amnon, as we are introduced to him, we are told that he is burning with this desire for his beautiful half-sister Tamar. The text tells us he loves her, though the context makes it clear that that's just an ironic usage of this word here. He may have thought it was love, but it was simply just an infatuation. Notice, again, why Amnon is physically ill over Tamar in verse 2. It says this, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill, for it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So the text reveals what Amnon wants. It's not love. It's not Tamar. It's a physical release. That's it. He just wants to do something to her. That's not love. That's animalistic. And it rules over Amnon here. And to make matters worse, Amnon has a friend, and it's his cousin, Jonadab, who has a solution. Well, if you want your half-sister, then here's how you bring it about. You are already acting sick. Now pretend that you're sick even more, so sick that you are lying in bed. And when your dad comes to visit you, have him send Tamar to your house in order to make you food, because no one will reject the request of the king. And that's exactly what happens. David comes to visit his sick son, and Amnon makes his request. Verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him, 
So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. There's a sad irony here in this passage. It's hard not to see this as a form of judgment on David because David is tricked into sending his daughter into the situation that will lead to her rape. Now, David has no idea what's going on, and yet he is a part of the events that will lead to this tragedy. David, for his part, thinks Amnon's request is reasonable. Maybe Tamar is well known for her ability to cook. We don't know. But David sends Tamar, and she does exactly what her father asks of her. Let's keep going in verse 9. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went, everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and she, that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, sister. Amnon refuses to eat unless Tamar feeds him. And so he sends all of his servants, all of her servants out of his house. And it's then that he makes his move. And when she brings the food near, he grabs her and won't let her go. And Amnon, in this moment, he's deluded into thinking that he is in love, prefers not to take what he wants by force. And so he asks her to do the unthinkable. He says, come, lie with me, sister. These words are an echo of Potiphar's wife from Genesis chapter 39. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Joseph was a slave and the object of his master's wife's lust. One day she grabs him and says, come lie with me. And Joseph refuses and he runs away and things get worse for him because of that. Joseph is a shining example of faithfulness. What does that tell us of Amnon here? Verse 12, she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. Clearly, Amnon is no Joseph, but Tamar is. She refuses and she tries to reason with her half-brother. She gives four objections to Amnon's lust here. First, she says, don't do this outrageous thing. It's not done in Israel. She's reminding Amnon of their calling as the people of God. She pleads with Amnon, remember, we are the Lord's treasured possession. We are meant to be a holy nation. We are meant to be set apart for our God. We're not supposed to be like the nations around us that this kind of thing happens in all the time. We're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We're supposed to be different than other people. This is not how God's people are to act she keeps going, maybe Amnon, if you're not convinced about your duty to your God, maybe you'll be convinced by the shame that it will cause me. That's her second objection. If that doesn't work, Amnon, just think about the shame that it will cause you. 
To do this means you will be an outrageous fool. Elsewhere in the Bible, a fool is described as a person who lives as though God does not exist. And that's exactly what Amnon is doing here in this moment. He is acting like there is no God. And yet even that doesn't seem to phase Amnon, which is why she tries this last-ditch effort to save herself, claiming that if Amnon were just to wait, then David would allow him to marry Tamar. Please don't rape me because dad will give you to me as a wife, or give me to you as a wife. There's little reason to believe that that would have actually happened. I doubt Tamar herself believed it, but she's so desperate she's willing to try anything in this moment. Verse 14. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Amnon does not listen to Tamar's objections. And the brevity of the verbs here reminds us of David's actions with Bathsheba from two chapters earlier. Amnon does not listen. He takes her by force and rapes her. And if possible, things get worse. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying as she went. Remember what Amnon wanted. He only wanted to do something to her. And now he's gotten what he wants. And so his love turns into hatred. He kicks her out of his house. He abandons her on the street. His command to his servant in verse 17 reveals what he thinks of Tamar. The word woman in verse 17 isn't in the Hebrew. Literally what he says is, put this thing out of my presence. Throw it to the curb. And so that's what happens to Tamar. And she's distraught. And this princess of Israel walks home in tears, her clothes torn just like her life. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. When Absalom sees her, he suspects what has happened. And we read these words of comfort here, and they seem to be inadequate. Hold your peace. Don't take this to heart. This just sounds incredibly calloused here in this moment. 
And maybe this is Absalom's response to his sister because he expects his father, the king, to take care of it. After all, David was known as a just king. He defended the defenseless. He was disgusted with evil. And maybe Absalom in this moment is thinking, surely dad is going to step in. Or maybe he's thinking, well, you know what? Don't worry about it, sister, because I've already got the plan to kill him. I'm going to take care of this on my own. I, I think it's both. I think that his response here shows that he has a mindset that says, if dad isn't going to take care of this, you can be sure that I will. And honestly, the shocking thing from this passage is that David doesn't take care of this. David doesn't do anything. He's, he's angry, but he neglects his duty as a father and he neglects his responsibility as a king in order to address this horrible evil in his family. And in David's inaction, we see the seeds of the next story planted. And two years later, they will fully bloom. And so when we pick up in, in chapter, or in, in verse 23, two years have passed. We jump into this next story. We see that Absalom has brooded for the last two years, nursing this hatred for his half-brother. And at long last, he is ready to put his revenge plan into action. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hatsor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. And he pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave his, him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom has his own servants. He has his own flocks, and his servants are tending to these flocks about 10 miles north of Jerusalem in a town called Baal Hatzor. Now, in that day, thousands of years ago, sheep shearing was an opportunity to party. People would party at sheep shearing festivals. So Absalom invites all of his brothers, all of his father to this party. He invites his father to this party, and yet David declines. And David declines, and, and Absalom says, well, well, why not Amnon coming in your place? And on the surface, this is a reasonable request here. If the king can't make it, then maybe the crown prince, the heir to the throne, his firstborn, Amnon, surely he can come as the king's representative. But David is suspicious. He's clearly thinking of what took place two years earlier with Amnon and Absalom and Absalom's sister Tamar. Yet Absalom dodges the question, and David at last agrees to send his son Amnon in his place. Don't miss history repeating itself. In the previous story, David was tricked into sending his daughter Tamar to her rape, and now David is tricked to sending his son Amnon to his death. Verse 28. 
Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Absalom's instructions to his servants are clear. Wait until Amnon is drunk and then on his signal, kill him. I find more irony here. He cloaks his plan for murder in noble talk. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Be valiant. It does take a lot of courage to kill a drunk man. And that's exactly what happens. Amnon is murdered. The party turns to panic. All of the brothers flee for their lives. While they were on the way, News came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, not let, my, not, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. In the midst of panic, it's natural for misinformation to spread. And so that's what happens here. The first person back to Jerusalem assumes the worst tells David, all of your sons have been killed. And David begins to mourn. But suddenly Jonadab appears again, and he's assuring David that only Amnon has been killed. It's almost as if Jonadab is saying, surely you saw this coming, right? Everyone knows that Absalom has hated Amnon since that fateful day two years ago. Some friend Jonadab is. When we're first introduced to him at the beginning of this chapter, he is called Amnon's friend. But Jonadab is crafty. He can see which way the wind is blowing, and so he switches sides, or at the very least, he's disassociated himself from Amnon. Jonadab won't go down with the ship. He's an opportunist, and he is exactly where he wants to be. Verse 34. But Absalom fled, and the young man who had kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. Time proves Jonadab's prediction is true. The watchman sees more people are returning from the north, and it ends up being the rest of David's sons. Together, the family mourns the death of Amnon, and I'm just left wondering, did anyone mourn two years ago with what happened to Tamar? As this text is silent, 
Let's keep going. Verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahomuid, king of Geshur. And David mourned his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. All of David's sons come back to Jerusalem, except for Absalom. He goes the other direction. He flees to Geshur. This is a kingdom northeast of Israel. It was ruled by his grandfather, his mom's father. And he stays there in hiding for three years. And as for David, he mourns the loss of his son every day while longing to be reconciled with his son Absalom. And yet, just like we saw earlier, David does nothing. He does nothing. And the text ends with a whimper. This man that was once a mighty king is now paralyzed and does nothing. And if you're like me, you might be saying, well, what on earth? One, why is this in the Bible beyond the fact that it actually happened? And two, what can we learn from this text that's filled with the despicable? That's just filled with brokenness. I think there are a handful of lessons we can learn. First, as I already mentioned, we can be confident that God keeps his promises, even the terrifying ones. We can be confident that God keeps his promises, even the terrifying ones. God had promised David that evil would come upon him from his own family because of what he had done with Bathsheba and with Uriah, and that's exactly what happens in this passage. Did you catch the parallels between 2 Samuel 13 and what we saw in 2 Samuel 11? Notice, again, what happened in 2 Samuel 11. It starts with the story of David's sexual sin. 2 Samuel chapter 13 starts with a story of his son's sexual sin, and yet it's even worse. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David plot the murder of a friend. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see the exact same thing with his son plotting the murder of his brother. God is keeping his promise here. And normally... When I say that, if you've been at Crosswinds for any number of years, months, weeks, I say that a lot. I talk about God keeping his promises all the time. And (laughs) I think this is the first time I've said that and it's not good news. Normally, when I say God keeps his promises, that's astoundingly good news. That the disconnect between the life you are living and what God has promised to us, we can be assured, we can be confident that even though he hasn't kept that promise now, he will one day, and that's really good news. And here, it's terrifying news for those who will not repent, for those who will not return to him. The scriptures are filled with warnings of what comes for persistent disobedience. 
And this text is a reminder of that. God has issued this promise to David through the prophet Nathan, and that's exactly what happens. And you can be confident, completely confident, that God will keep his promises, and most of the time that's incredibly good news, sometimes it's terrifying news. And yet, even though in this moment it might seem terrifying, I also think it's also really good news. Because if you are Tamar, if you've experienced this horrific wrong, the assurance that God keeps his promises of justice, of of making things right, that's good news. Even though it can be terrifying news as well. Second, just as we saw from 2 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, this text gives us insight on how we should live, primarily by telling us how we should not live. Let's consider each of the five main characters in this story and what we can learn from them. First with Amnon. Here's the lesson from Amnon. A fool throws away everything for temporary pleasure. A fool throws away everything for temporary pleasure. That's, that's Tamar's word of warning to him in verse 12 and verse 13, that if he's going to do this, he's going to become this outrageous fool, this person who lives like there is no God. You look at Psalm 14, verse 1, we see that the fool is described as the person who says in his heart, there is no God. That's not talking about atheism. That's just talking about the person who says within them that makes decisions based off of the fact that they don't think that God actually exists or that God actually cares about what they're doing. And that's what we see from Amnon here. He's an utter fool because he does not factor God into the equation. Do you see all that he loses? He's the crown prince. He's the heir to the kingdom. And he throws it all away. And he's killed two years later. And you know what? We would do well to to learn the lesson of Amnon from this passage. Regardless of what that pleasure is, it doesn't have to be sex. It can be any number of things. When When we throw away our lives, for the sake of temporary pleasure, even if it's for 60 years, that's temporary. We are living like fools. We're just like Amnon. If we don't take God seriously, if we don't, if we don't consider God at all, we're fools. Because a fool is a person who throws everything away for temporary pleasure. Next, Jonadab. A true friend is one of the greatest gifts God can give you. And it is also one of the greatest, it could be one of the greatest curses on your life. You have to choose your friends with the utmost care. I love this pointed reminder from Alistair Begg. He says it this way. Make sure you choose your friends wisely because there are friends in whose company it's easy to do good and there are friends in whose company it is easy to do bad. And we should take that to heart no matter our age, but especially for those of us who are in school. 
Do you know why I'm a pastor? In part, it's because when I was a freshman in high school, I started hanging out with a group of people that were a good influence on me. And because that was my friend group, and they all went to church, even though I didn't really want to go to church, eventually God used that situation to change my heart, to change my life, to lead to my conversion, and eventually my calling into pastoral ministry. And it was because of friends. Don't miss the lesson from Jonadab here. The, the company you keep will set the trajectory of your life. It'll set the trajectory of your life. Do you know what Jonadab should have said when Amnon confessed to him? He should have said the exact same thing that Tamar did. And there's a chance Amnon would have listened. But instead, the trajectory of his life was determined by the company he kept, and it ended in his death and in despair. The company you keep will set the trajectory of your life. Let's consider Tamar next. Tamar is, is a tragic figure in this text. She's the only one worth emulating here. The only one worth emulating, and yet she's the one who experiences the most horror. Tamar does nothing wrong and suffers horribly anyway. What We might say, what can we learn possibly from Tamar here? It's this, those who build their lives on the word of God will not ultimately be put to shame. Those who build their lives on the word of God will not ultimately be put to shame. And you may be saying, well, how, how exactly can I say that? Considering the great shame that Tamar experiences in this passage. Maybe it sounds like I'm making light of the suffering of this godly woman. L let me be abundantly clear. Tamar here experiences horrific shame. But we cannot read this chapter in isolation from the rest of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear that this woman who trusted in God will in the end not be met with shame. Tamar's father, David, he wrote these words in Psalm 25, reminding us that our shame and suffering in this life do not have the final say. And the context of, Second Samuel, or excuse me, of Psalm 25 is different from 2 Samuel 13, but notice what David has to say about his confidence in Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Good and upright is the Lord. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. When we read 2 Samuel chapter 13 in the context of the entire Bible, we can say with confidence, in the end, it is not Tamar who will be put to shame, but Amnon. And if you have experienced great shame at the hands of others, maybe you've even experienced great shame from what you've done with your own hands. You've done something that haunts you every single day. 
do you know there's hope? That you, if you were found in Jesus, don't have to live in shame forever, that Jesus will take away that shame. Don't miss the testimony of Tamar here, that those who build their lives on the word of God will not ultimately be put to shame. Let's continue looking at David. David's a shell of the man he once was. I mean, I, I read this passage and I just, I just, I'm left, what happened? And I think if you're, if you're reading 2 Samuel, that should, that should be their response. Like you get, you get to this part of David's life and you're just like, what happened? Where's, where's the David that fought Goliath out of the concern for God's glory? Where's, where's the David who refuses to raise his hand against Saul, even though he has every reason to do so, but he does not because he resolutely waits on God? Where's the David who is the defender of the weak, uh, the defender of the oppressed? And yet here we see David silent when he should have defended his daughter. Do you notice who Tamar lives with after this happens to her? It's her brother. It should have been David. David should have taken care of her. David does not bring discipline as a father, justice as a king, and and his kingdom is nearly destroyed because of it. And here's the lesson that we have to learn from David. Ignoring sin is never the answer. Ignoring sin is never the answer. I don't know if David is paralyzed because of his own failure, his own sin. He, He can read the parallels just as well as we can. He did the exact same thing. Maybe, maybe he's paralyzed by that. I'm, I'm going to be a hypocrite if I, if I address my sons. Maybe he's unwilling to do the hard thing as a father, the, the hard thing as a king, and address the sin in his own sons. It's probably both. But because David does nothing, the sin doesn't go away. It festers. And it grows. And the problem is far worse than it would have been if he would have just dealt with it in the beginning. The same is true in our lives. If we become aware of something in our lives that is offensive to God, ignoring it is never the answer. We have to address it head on immediately before it grows and grows and grows and becomes more complicated, more complex, harder to get out of, and it will ruin our entire lives. Ignoring sin is never the answer. Let's look at one last character here, Absalom. I feel for Absalom, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, in one sense, his, his hatred here is, is understandable, right? His father fails him. His father fails his sister by doing nothing. And so Absalom decides, well, I'm going to just take matters into my own hands. And the penalty for Amnon's actions was death. And so we might read this and say, well, Absalom's just doing what David should have done. 
And yet, that was not Absalom's call to make. And we see from this passage that, that Absalom, he's, he's not motivated by justice. He's motivated by hatred and revenge. You see, here's the problem when it comes to Absalom. Vengeance is not ours to take. It belongs to the Lord alone, and whether that is in the final judgment or it is through earthly justice and the criminal justice system, vengeance is not ours to take. We can be sympathetic with Absalom here, but we cannot excuse what he does. And we have to ask ourselves, as we consider Absalom in this moment, we have to ask ourselves this question, will we trust the Lord for justice? Or will we take matters into our own hands? When we've experienced great wrong, are we content to wait upon the Lord to do what he sees is right because we know he will do what is right? Or would he take matters into our own hands? That's the question that Absalom here poses us. Do we trust God enough to, to trust him that he will do what he has said that he will do? Or do we take matters into our own hands and disgrace him and ourselves by doing so? Will we trust the Lord for justice? Or will we take matters into our own hands? Listen, there's so much more we can say about this text, but I just want to look at one more thing. That's the overarching message of this text. Because you, you read all that, all of 2 Samuel chapter 13, you consider those, those six points, those six lessons that we could learn I don't know about you, I describe some chapters in the Bible as when you get done reading them, you just need a shower. That's the way I feel after this chapter. And, and you know what the overarching message of this chapter is? It's something that we've seen over and over and over in 2 Samuel. It's kind of been the, the overarching message we've hit every week. And it's simply this, we need a better king. We need a better king. David's not good enough. His sons aren't good enough. This king, David, if he's the best that humanity has to offer, we're in a world of trouble. We need something better. We need someone better. We need a better king. And thank God we have one in Jesus. This text, like the rest of 2 Samuel, should make our hearts long for Jesus. This text doesn't glorify evil. It exposes the, the wretchedness of the human heart and what we need. And it makes us long for what we need. Do you long for a better king? A king who will not tolerate evil? a king who will take away our shame, a king who welcomes the broken and the messed up and the cast out into his family. We need a better king. Praise God we have one. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being our king.
a king that we can fully trust to do what is right. A king who welcomes us into his family. A king who takes away our shame. What incredible good news that is. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.